check. Can I get you to check? Sound check, one, two, sound check. <laughs> cool. Yeah, if you want to get it, like, right up on okay. you. Sometimes I know mics are, like, weird when you have it right up on you, so I wasn't sure if this was one Yeah, of no, this one you kind of have to have right up on you. How's that? Better? Yeah, that's a lot better. Perfect. <laughs> so, do you like peanut butter sandwiches? I love peanut butter sandwich. Like, just peanut butter sandwich? Yeah, or like, just, just peanut butter. See, I'm not a big... I don't eat just peanut butter, but I'll do, okay. like, peanut butter and jelly. Or growing up, I did do, like, the peanut butter and marshmallow sandwiches. I don't know if you ever had those, but... Yep, of course. Big peanut butter girl. I'm an American, so... <laughs> Creamy or smooth? Or uh, crunchy? Creamy. Creamy? Oh, I'm not a crunchy peanut butter person. I don't know. What do you like for your jelly? Are, are you a grape kind of girl? I'm or? a grape jelly. I like strawberry. I feel like it's like everyone has. I like strawberry jelly, but I just always go towards grape. But I think everyone has their like, no, this is hot take. People think one or the other is correct. I'm like, it's all fucking jelly to me. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty much the same. But I will say the blackberry jelly at Cracker Barrel that they have with the biscuits is superior. Can't say I've ever had it. You've never had it before? No. Have you had Cracker Barrel before? I've been to Cracker Barrel, but I'm also I'm also from the north, so yeah. like Cracker Barrel is not as big of a It's not big. I mean, like I've been to a Cracker Barrel, but it's not as big of a thing as it is down here. Yeah, you're from Long Island, right? Yes, correct. Okay. What was it like to grow up in Long Island? On Long Island. On Long Island. On Long Island. We're going to say you got to say it right because <laughs> you're on think about it, you're online, you're on whatever. I that's just such a New York thing for me to Say it. I feel like it's you know, no different than growing up anywhere else. You have your little bubble, and you think that's it, and you think you grow up with this worldview of, okay, I'm gonna go off to college and then probably move back home or move to the closest city that's nearby. For me, that was Manhattan, and then somewhere along the way, you grow up and realize, oh, there is more out there than just my little bubble. And for me, that bubble was very Italian heavy. You know, I have a huge family um, on my mom's side, all very, like, every stereotypical New York Italian thing you can think of is probably my family. Are as, they Yankees fans? Um, No, my grandfather was actually a Mets fan. Oh, okay. We okay. are big Rangers fans and big Giants fans, though, in okay. my household. Um, but, yeah, you know, Sunday dinners, heavy on the sauce. You got to get the New York accent. The gravy. No, that's a Jersey thing. Okay. So yeah, if you're, I, I love Sopranos. So. so if you say if you say gravy, typically you're from Jersey. But if you say sauce, you're usually from like Long Island, Staten Island. And Long Island, for the record, I will put this on record. Long Island and Staten Island are indeed two separate islands. If you say to somebody that's from one or the other, asking if they're from the other island, they will get offended. <laughs> <laughs> what is the confusion surrounding it? People just think it's all one place. I, I don't really know. But Is it, it like the Dominican Republic and uh, I don't know what the other the other half of the island is, but it's two countries. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. It's kind of like the same thing. People think, oh, they're all New York Italians. They're from the same island. It's like, no, 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 no. Those places are very, very different. <laughs> So Well, Long Island's very working class, right? So is Staten Island. Long okay. Island and Staten Island are both working class. Um, Long Island, you definitely obviously have a lot more wealthy neighborhoods. You know, you've got, think, you know, the Hamptons are out there. Every if you're, It also depends what county you're in. Long Island is split into Nassau and Suffolk County. Nassau is typically the wealthier, but it's still a lot of working class, too. Mm -hmm. And, like, then there's the South Shore versus the North Shore. South Shore, typically... The real estate is more expensive because you're right on, you know, the Atlantic Ocean. Mm -hmm. So it all just kind of depends on what your area you are from on Long Island. But where I was at, it was a lot of working class. Like my family was, you know, we were comfortable, but we weren't well off by any means. We were definitely middle class.
Like blue collar style, that kind of a My feel. father wasn't blue collar, but I did have a lot of friends whose yeah. families were blue collar. Yeah, I grew up in Maine, and have you ever been to Maine before? I have, actually. My freshman year of high school, I went. Okay. Where'd you go in Maine? Uh, Portland. Okay. Yes. So that's not far from where I grew up. Portland is our big city, mm-hmm. which is funny because it's not even, like, the size of... It, it has more in common with, like, Mount Juliet or Franklin than yeah. it does with Nashville. Yeah. Um, but I'm from a super small town, like, a half hour north of there, and it's just very working class but it's kind of strange though there's the working class element and then there's also people who move from oh, there from other places that are rich or they're like college professors mm-hmm. so my my high school was very split with kids whose parents were college professors and kids whose dads worked at bath ironworks mm-hmm. which is a shipyard where they build battleships for the navy that's where my dad worked yeah. So there was a real interesting, you know, it was like both middle class. It was like upper middle class and then like middle middle class and yeah. lower middle class. Um, but I'm I'm grateful for my working class roots. I think it really pushed me into the person that I am as far as like with my creativity mm-hmm. and kind of the DIY ethics that I have. So Yeah, no, I think I I think I can definitely relate to that. You know, both my parents, they grew up dirt poor. I mean, my dad always said to me that his two options were the military or jail because that's just how it went where he was from. And so he grew up, went to the military. He ended up getting a very good job. Same thing with my mom, you know, both, but neither of my parents went to college and they worked their way up in the world. My mom ran her own business for, you know, 20 years so she could raise me and be at home with me while still bringing in a second income. And both my parents, you know, instilled that in me. They did want me to go to college, and I was fortunate enough to be able to afford a great education with very minimal student loans coming out. But it's I started working when I was 14 years old. The day I turned 14 and could get my working papers, I did. And, you know, got to college, started my own business at 17 to kind of just support myself while I was taking classes. And, you know, it kind of just has carried with me through my whole life and it's something that my parent my creativity is something that my parents always also fostered because you know they both were creative in their own ways my mm-hmm. mom was a web designer and my dad is um is in cybersecurity, so like computer coding and he loves to build computers so creativity he does also love to paint as well and I got my art skills from him but those are two kind of very different creative outlets absolutely uh, what was your first job so I was working at an ice cream shop um and it was called Ralph's Italian Ices. It's a very New York thing. Like, I I don't even know how to explain it. Um, but, yeah, so I worked there. I only worked there for a couple months because the owner was a little creepy. And there was, like, some situations. So I quit there. Um, and then I ended up working at a different location because all, they're all franchises. So I ended up working at a different one when I turned 16. Um, and I worked to, for her, actually, until up until I moved to Nashville. Like, even... Every summer when I would come home from college, I would pick up a shift here and there. You know, during COVID, the minimal hours we were allowed to be open, she let me pick up a couple shifts. Um, and her and I still keep in touch. She's very good to me. And it's funny, her son went to Vanderbilt. So when they came down for his graduation, finally, she reached out to me. He was like, let's go get dinner. I want to see you. I want to hear all about everything. So it was. It just kind of goes to show, too, how having a good boss that like fosters a good relationship with you will really greatly impact you because she always encouraged me in everything that I did. And she wasn't, she didn't have to do that. She was 
the owner of the ice cream shop I worked at. Like she didn't have to care about a random high schooler that wasn't her own kid. I think it's great when you do have a good boss though. Yeah. Uh, Cause it, it makes all the difference in the world. I've worked all sorts of jobs. Um, a lot in retail. When I first got out of high school, I didn't mm-hmm. go to college. And then I started doing sales jobs at about like 22 or 23. And that's kind of the thing that I always did. I was also an Uber driver for like four years. But, um, yeah, I think working with, with someone who has some life experience, like I had a boss, like my first professional sales jobs, who was, who, or sales job, who was a retired Navy admiral. Mm-hmm. And he's shaped my life in ways that I can't even explain. Um, he got me just uncomfortable in life and yeah. made it a normal thing to be uncomfortable. And yeah. it was crucial, especially being a musician and doing the podcasts and all of that. If mm-hmm. it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have learned how to like cold email people or cold call people to try and get them to come on the show. Yeah. And I, I think it's funny because a lot of those times people in those who have that kind of impact you, on you, they don't even realize it. Like what's a blip to them is such a pivotal moment in your life. And the thing I always say too, is if you're comfort is great, it's great to feel comfortable, but if you stay there for too long, you will get stuck. And it's maybe that's the hustler mentality in me. And I'm always looking for how can I improve and be better? Yeah. But I think it's true that if you're going to accomplish what you want to out of, if you want to, if you're going to get what you want out of life, you have to learn to be uncomfortable and figure out how to get yourself out of those situations. And I think too often, you know, this is where kind of people feel like their life gets stuck. And then suddenly you're 45 and you're having a midlife crisis because you're like, where did the time go? And it's because you were comfortable and you didn't push yourself when you had the time and the chance. I think, you know, prime example for me is moving here. You know, when I moved, when I moved to Nashville two and a half years ago now, I, it would have been so easy for me to take the easy way out. You know, it was COVID. I didn't know, I had nothing tying me to the city. I didn't know a single person. I had never visited. You know, the only thing I had was a job offer on the table. Whereas back home, I had law school on the table. I had all of my family and friends. Everything I have ever known was back home. And I was going to go back to Syracuse University for law school. That would have been the easy choice, right? And it seems like a no-brainer to some people, especially with a scholarship on the table. It's like, why wouldn't you take that money? But at the same time, that's three more years of schooling, more money that I would still be putting out. And sure, I'd be comfortable, but would I be happy? Well, I feel like, Especially something like being a lawyer, which no shade on anybody who goes goes to college to do jobs that you need for college. That's yeah. one of them. Um, but what happens if after, what is it, seven years of college, you yeah. finally get you to find- your first job and you're like, oh, fuck, I, I don't like this at all. I hate this. Exactly. And I was looking down that path. And that's kind of how I felt. It was like, sure, I would be going towards entertainment law, which I genuinely enjoyed that work. You know, I had to take a course in college and I enjoyed it very much. It made sense in my brain and I loved it. But I didn't know if I loved it enough to do it for the next however many years of my life. Whereas I had an opportunity on the table here in Nashville that I had been looking forward to for over a year and a half. And even though it was like an unsure thing, I had to take that risk. And I gave myself one year. I said, if in one year I hate this job, then I will move home, regroup, and maybe go back to law school or figure out something else. But for right now, 
you know, it was it was COVID. I had <laughs> nobody else was doing anything. So why yeah. not? Why not get started on my life in some capacity? And sure enough, I did it. <laughs> COVID was an interesting experience for me because everybody was kind of slowing down and reflecting that maybe they weren't heading the direction that they were wanting to in life. Mm -hmm. But it reaffirmed a lot of what I was doing. Yeah. I knew what I cared about. I knew that I wanted to, to play music. I was already doing that. I knew I wanted to do the podcast. I was already doing that. It was just the roadblock of COVID that was keeping In the way. it yeah, from, from happening. But it's kind of interesting because we, we had similar yet different experiences in that situation. Right. Because for me, COVID ended my senior year of college. Oh, shit. Okay. Yeah. So one second, I'm a college student. We're getting ready to go on spring break. Suddenly, I'm on spring break with all my friends and we're celebrating. We're like, you know what? We're, we're almost here reflecting and just trying to enjoy ourselves. And suddenly, we get that email. Just kidding. School's over. Don't bother coming back. Semester's done. Like, you'll finish your classes online. Damn. And in that moment, we all were freaking out. And I remember freaking out, yes, because I was heartbroken at all the activities that, like, you know, there was so many senior things planned, which, of course, in the grand scheme of things don't matter, but something you look forward to all four years of college. And sure, it was only two months left, but those two months, I didn't get to say goodbye to a lot of friends. And, you know, just those final closures and things of that nature, but... The other thing I was like, well, what does this mean? Because I had like five different jobs opportunities on the table, whether I had just I was waiting to have my first interview or I had my first interview one by one, no longer hiring, no longer hiring. And I just had that sinking feeling of what am I going to do? I just spent four years studying and a job seemed like a guaranteed thing. And now it's not. What did you go to? What is your under uh, your degree in? So my degree is television, radio and film with a minor in English literature. And so I went to Syracuse University in Newhouse, which is they're a big broadcasting school. right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and television, radio and film is big. It's just one of those majors that, you know, broadcast journalism is what Newhouse is known for. But they are also known for TRF and their program is a lot of what I learned there, I actually have been able to implement on my podcast. So it's kind of great to say that I use a lot of what I learned in college in my real life work, both personal for the podcast and my actual career. Um, but COVID kind of just was this big glaring, just deer in the headlights moment. Of Especially in that what? situation where you're like about to embrace adulthood for the first time. Right. Like I mean, true adulthood. Yeah. You're out on your own. I was getting, I mean, exactly. And to suddenly have that, and everybody was in the same boat, obviously. My entire class was, because we went from a booming job market to just kidding, we're no longer hiring. And so I'm thankful every day that I was able to get my job and was given that opportunity. And obviously, it's definitely, I think, paid off for me. But the thing I'll say about COVID is, like you said, it forced some people to reevaluate their lives. And it definitely did that for me. But in a way of forcing me to open my eyes and realize, is, is my quote unquote life plan the one that I actually want? Because if you asked me in, you know, when I was 20 years old, so four years ago now, if you asked me four years ago, I would have moved to a different city and be living on like be doing everything that I'm doing now. I would have been like, you're out of your fucking mind. I never, this is not the life I pictured for myself, but in the best way possible. 
I know what you mean. I think if someone would have told me when I was in high school that one day I would be living in a Nashville and I would have a podcast, like when I was growing up, podcasting wasn't really a thing yet. Mm -hmm. It was very, 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 very fringe. The only person I knew of who had a podcast was Mark Hoppus from Blink-182. He had a podcast called Hi, My Name is Mark, and the episodes were like seven minutes long. Yeah. So this was pre-Joe Rogan. Yeah. Um, And that was, I maybe learned about that going into my sophomore year that there was a thing called podcast. So I had no idea this was an option. Um, But yeah, like looking back on it now, I knew that I was going to be a musician no matter what, because that's just, I decided that from an early age that that's what I wanted out mm-hmm. of life. I, I just knew, you know. Um, but as far as living in Nashville, I wouldn't have necessarily guessed that. But there was a lot of things that happened in between me graduating high school and moving to Nashville. Like, I, I lived in Florida for six months. My sister lives down there. Mm-hmm. I lived in Colorado for a year, which that was kind of a lonely year. I didn't really know anybody out there. I was very introverted and smoked way too much weed when I was out there. (laughs) I was so high. As one does. Yeah. And then I moved down to North Carolina for about six months as I was transitioning to Nashville. Yeah. Um. Because I knew I wanted to move here. And luckily, because I've had sales jobs, I was able to get work here. Mm -hmm. But even when I left Colorado and I moved back to Maine for a couple of years, I had in my mind that I was going to come to Nashville. I just knew. Yeah. Because Jack White was here. The Black Keys were here. And those were all artists that I really loved. Mm -hmm. And this seemed like the only place that was still doing rock music. Yeah. Uh, At least in the U.S. Yeah. But it was very different um, when I moved here. Like, all the craziness was really just starting. Mm -hmm. It wasn't completely underway yet. Um, And I got a job. I was actually working on Broadway. I was working for this company that I will not name, but it was uh, a freight broker company. Okay. And basically, their business model was like a cross between a pyramid scheme and a puppy mill. They would hire all of these kids straight out of college. I was the only person in my fucking office without a degree. Um, And they would hire all these kids, and the average length of employment there was like six months. I was talking to one of my friends today, and uh, he worked at another one of their offices in another city. And we bonded over that. We were laughing about it. It was a horrible fucking job. Oh, I'm sure. Sounds like it. But I'm grateful for it. Yeah. I'm very grateful for it. Um, but I moved here when I was 24, which is fucking young to move to a place and start a life. I mean, I moved here when I was 21. Yeah. Just. Yeah. So you t- you kind of know what I mean then. No, I, I definitely do. And it was kind of scary, but also thrilling because I felt like if I didn't do it now, I was never going to. You know, a lot of people, I think, romanticize Manhattan and think it's this great city. And I'm not saying it's not. No one come for me. But. I think there is a misconception that you're just going to move there and everything is going to fall into place. And that is certainly not the case. The thing, the thing I always say is this is the key difference between LA and New York, New York. They at least have the courtesy to stab you in the front LA. They'll stab you in the back. Yeah. So with New York, it is very cutthroat. It is very fast paced. And if you are not somebody 
who's used to that, it is going to be a culture shock. I mean, for me, I was just there this past weekend and being gone for so long at first, it was a little overwhelming. After a couple hours, I settled right back into, you know, the fast paced lifestyle, but it definitely is a whirlwind there. And it's very easy to lose yourself because you're going to get caught up in the pressures and the lifestyle and just trying to quote unquote fit in. Um, and I think that it's easy to do that here in Nashville too. You know, it's a different scene, but you can get caught up of trying to fit in and you lose yourself along the way. But I think the biggest takeaway from my journey moving here is the more authentic I was to myself, the more I settled in and the more quality people that I got into my life than just trying to fit, fit in. So, so to say. I feel like my Nashville journey, I've largely been like a satellite orbiting a planet, (laughs) just kind of on my own out in space because it's funny. I've I've been thinking about it more recently. I don't think necessarily people connect the fact that like Taylor Berryman is the poptimist and the poptimist is Taylor Berryman because I've played for all kinds of bands in town and there's people that know me. Um, like those that are close to me, like the circle that I run with, they they know, but um, it's almost like this this wizard of Oz. Like there's a mm-hmm. a thing in front of me, and I'm not really I'm not good at like going out and socializing. <laughs> uh, I I think like even last night I had a buddy invite me to like this this holiday party at a at a studio, and I didn't go. I should have gone. I didn't go though, but. Uh, I, I get socially, I think, phobic a lot of times because I feel like I'm I'm good one-on-one, you know what I yeah. mean? And if I have to give a presentation or I have to sell something, I can do that as well, um, which is funny because, like, I was an Uber driver for so long, and I can just talk and listen all day long, you yeah. know what I mean? Have a conversation with someone. It's an art form. But, yeah, that's that's the one thing I feel like has really held me back where even when I go out to play, I always have earplugs in, too. Yeah. So I don't fuck up my hearing. Um, and I got my hearing tested, actually, uh, earlier this year, and they said I have really good hearing. I have no hearing loss, which is a miracle as a musician. But it's because I've always worn earplugs. But people will try and come up to me, and I have my earplugs in because there's a band playing. And they'll try and talk to me, and I can't fucking hear them. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's just, I don't know. I'm just up in my own head about it. <laughs> I mean, I think for me, being social has always come naturally, but not in the way that people think. I mean, for me, I've always been the bubbly person and always had a smile on my face, but it used, it now just becomes, now it comes because I'm genuinely happy, but it used to come from a place of, I want people to like me. I want to fit in that anxiousness. And so it's like kind of like almost like the polar opposite reaction is I'll I'll talk to anybody because I just want to make a good impression um but yeah (laughs) what do you think that is I mean I think it you know it definitely came from a place of being bullied growing up and struggling with you know body dysmorphia anxiety depression everything under the sun and so it became it was kind of just a way to hide how I was feeling about myself of and needing that external validation of like oh if people like me and 
you know, people invite me to places, that means there's nothing wrong with me. And if people don't, then there some, is something wrong with me. And it's my fault that people don't like me. You know, all those things that we think about ourselves. And, you know, it's now being older and seeing it through a different lens. It's it had nothing to do with me at all. And just, I was not clicking with people. Like those were not my people. Yeah. And growing up, you know, in New York, it is that there's that you grew up with those beauty standards. And I think as a young girl seeing the TV shows and the movies, there was never anybody with my body type. The only time you ever saw somebody who had a little bit of a curvier figure is she was labeled the fat friend and the only time a guy suddenly was interested in her is after she had this major transformation and was suddenly skinny, right? So, of course, that played a lot into it. And it played not just how I felt about myself, but the way others would treat me, too. Mm -hmm. So, How would they treat you? Just, you would look so much prettier if you lost 10 pounds. Or, you know, pinching fat and being like, oh, you just got to get rid of that. And it's like, you think I... Is I, that g girls that are doing this or both, men? Even men would make comments too of like, oh, you're so pretty for a thick girl. I even get that one to this day. Like even in my 20s, I still get comments like that from guy, like guys just fetishizing having a curvier body type. And I'm kind of to that. I'm just like, you're gross. Get lost. <laughs> like, you know, I now being 24 and taking control of my health and my fitness and just having this newfound sense of self and confidence I realized now that there was never anything that I needed to change and the other thing I will say too about just body and health and all that stuff is it doesn't always like when I was at my skinniest I was so unhealthy I wasn't eating I I honestly would have been classified as having an eating disorder and I was so tired all the time. My hair was falling out. I was so sick. At, that was also at the height of, you know, having autoimmune issues. And that was made worse by the fact that I wasn't, I was starving myself. Now, I actually eat more than I ever have. And I'm losing weight. Mm -hmm. And I'm able to weigh myself without feeling like shit about myself. And it's all because I've shifted my mindset and kind of realized that as long as I can look in the mirror and say, I love myself, that is all that really matters at the end of the day and nothing else does. And I, I mean, that's just come with age, but it also, it's just crazy how everything is connected in the body. Where do you think those standards come from? I mean, look at what we consume. But I'm saying, like, even the standards that we consume, where do you think those come from? <sighs> that is honestly a really good question. And it's so hard to say exactly because I'm going to go way back here. When you look at paintings from over 100 years ago, the women didn't – there were women that were portrayed as curvier and, you know, having roles and all of these things. Rubenesque. Yes. And they were deemed beautiful and sexy. And somewhere along the way, just it, it, body types aren't a trend, yet somehow we, as a culture and a society, have made them a trend. You know, Western culture has definitely gravitated towards more thin women. But now it's weird because when I look at the 2000s movies, right? 
all these women were bone skinny and that was it. And they were typically tall and lean. And now you're seeing, okay, we want a skinny girl, but we want to have a big ass and big tits and like big lips and this and that. And it's just weird how things are going in and out of trends, but they shouldn't be trends. And it's, I, I honestly wish I could say where exactly, like pinpoint where exactly it came from. I think it all start does start with, you know, social media and comparing one, each other, like yourself to one another, because, you know, you can, I can look at myself all day long and be like, I wish I had that girl's legs. Oh, her legs are so muscular, whatever it is. I, I, the only thing I can really think of is social media and films and TV shows. Sure. Yeah. And that I kind mean, of that, culture that is uh, American culture. It, it really Entertainment is. Entertainment culture. It, it definitely is because we, I mean, growing up, like I said, I didn't see myself represented. Now I'm seeing my body type more represented and it's a really great feeling because I did a whole episode about this on my podcast talking about how... Not the Girl Next Door. Yes, Not the Girl Next Door podcast. Um, talking about how rom-coms perpetuate this idea of, you know, either you see the protagonist needing to change herself to finally get the guy or making some sort of sacrifice or just perpetuating these this bad behavior in relationships. These toxic relationships are the ones that we want to see together in the end. And it all comes together in a weird way and when it comes to the body type thing I think that trying to think of how to like phrase this like body types aren't a trend and even though it's they've somehow become a trend it really just stems from I think comparing each other and comparison is the thief of joy so if we were I think to stop comparing like women like pitting women against women even guys against guys because men do get it too of the body type issues it's just not I think is talked about can I can I be 100% honest with you as a perspective from a guy yeah I have never felt any kind of pressure to be to be any kind of standard I mean that's great that you haven't I I've heard from guys that they have felt that standard just from seeing, you know, magazines. I'm, I'm like, sure. I'm sure there are men out there. Just from my experience personally, I've, yeah. I've never felt that way. It's like, yeah, of course I'd like to look like fucking Jason Momoa or some shit. <laughs> but I also understand, like, I don't have Jason Momoa levels of discipline. Yeah. What I will say about myself, though, is I beat myself up over the lack of discipline, even though I am a pretty disciplined person. Yeah. I'm just not psychotic like that because like the kind of for shit like that, that's like other level that they're doing. Plus, they're all on steroids anyways. I mean, some of the, I mean, I don't know if Jason Momoa is. I have friends who the rock definitely is probably you, I, you can't get that big the way some of those guys are. You can't get or like Hugh Jackman or Chris Evans. They they all take steroids for the movies. One hundred percent for the they movies do. probably, but I don't. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about that, but I will. What I what I can com the only thing I can comment on is like what I know for a fact. And I I've, I have a lot of friends that are in the bodybuilding community uh -huh. here in Nashville. Um, and it's weird. A lot of them aren't on steroids, like you may think, and it is definitely a crazy. Natty. Yeah, they are natty. Yeah. And it's a crazy level of discipline that it is a crazy level of discipline to get that lean. And the thing they will tell you, though, is it's not sustainable. 
for sure. It's definitely not sustainable because, and also, you know, in their peak week, which is like the week before their competitions, they're tired, they're barely eating, like, because they just need to maintain that physique for one more week. So after that, and even the process after a show is so intense to reverse back and increase your calories. And it's all a science. And it's just insane because that's their sport. You know, it's just like any other athlete that they're training for a sport. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's crazy to me, like going back to kind of some of the stuff you were talking about earlier, growing up, how you felt. Yeah. Uh, And I'm totally 100% guilty of this. I eat garbage food all the time, but we're never really taught uh, what's healthy and what's unhealthy. I don't even think it's about healthy versus unhealthy, because I think when you label foods in that way, it starts to create an unhealthy relationship with food. You need to be taught about moderation and macros and I mean the food pyramid is kind of needs to be arranged the way we teach about nutrition needs to be arranged because I will say for me I obviously am very big into lifting I'm not a bodybuilder by any means but I do power lift and since I have started counting macros and paying attention macros I don't even know so basically it's like protein, carbs, fats. Those are your three. Like that's what makes up calories. Okay. And I'm, I'm not an expert on this. So don't like take my advice as, you know, I'm a person, I'm not a personal trainer or anything like that, but I have a personal trainer. So since I've started paying attention to things of that nature, I realized how much I can actually eat in a day and how much fuel my body does need. And my relationship with food has actually improved, which is weird because it can be triggering to some people to pay attention to those things. But it's made me feel less guilty if, you know, I have a scoop of ice cream. That's, you know, Jenny's ice cream, my guilty pleasure. I love it. In the past, you know, it's all about moderation and balance. And I think that's what needs to be taught more than, you know, ice cream, good. Eggs, I mean, ice cream, bad. Eggs, good. Like everything in moderation. And if you have a balanced diet, that's the key. Sure. Yes. But. I guess what I'm trying to say in American culture, balance is not something we're really big on. In oh, a lot no, of ways. there is no there is no balance portion size. We don't know her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just McDonald's every meal. Work 80 hours a week. Yeah, buy think, a new car. I think the 80 hours a week thing, though, that mentality has definitely shifted post COVID. I think people have COVID also forced people to realize the importance of, you know, spending time with your family, your friends, doing things that bring you joy in life and having some sort of balance. Um, That is something I think if we want to look at the pandemic with a couple positives, that is definitely one is people have realized the importance of actually living life again. For sure. Yeah. I, I kind of had a moment um, here this, this past year or so where I was going so fucking hard all the time that my body just started breaking down. I was having a lot of health issues. Yeah. And I was gigging a couple nights a week when I wasn't gigging, I was rehearsing. And when I wasn't rehearsing, I was doing the podcast or driving for Uber. Yeah. And in a, even though I enjoyed everything I was doing overall, I was not enjoying my life. It got too stressful and there was too many people that were depending on me. And I'm not a person that like feels a burden to help other people or even over 
over commits commits myself because I I don't like saying no because I don't care I will say no I'll be like, mm-hmm. no I don't want to do that but if there are things I I want to do then I do have a hard time turning down an opportunity right and I kept getting opportunity after opportunity and it was difficult for me to always say say no to the opportunities because if you say no to one gig you could get replaced for that gig and then guess what you're out of a job now because yeah. maybe they like that guy better. And that's just the nature of being a musician. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're always on the verge of, as a sideman anyways. Like if yeah. you're a gun for hire, which is what I've always done. I've been a gun for hire as a bass player. There's always somebody else out there who wants to take your gig. Yeah. Especially if it pays, you know. Oh, I'm, sh- I'm sure. And I'm, I'm obviously not a musician, but I can relate to the burnout feeling. You know, it's funny people don't realize again i've said this before everything is connected with the body your stress levels do affect your health and all of that absolutely burnout can actually take years to recover from it's not just a weekend of rest if you're truly burnt out it can take i think on average it can take three years to recover from yeah which is mind-blowing to think about and it but it does make so much sense of why people develop chronic health issues and chronic fatigue and it's because your body is in this constant state of fight or flight and your nervous system is so overwhelmed it's shot your nervous system is That's shot to hell to exactly and i think the pandemic really forced us to recognize that fact and it gave people the reprieve that they really needed unless of course unfortunately they lost their jobs and were struggling to pay bills then obviously it didn't but when it comes to stress levels and chronic illnesses, they are connected. And I think that's another topic that is kind of coming to light. And I realized for me too, just things I've noticed with, because I have, um, I've talked about this on my show is I have PCOS and hypothyroidism. And I've noticed that it flares up more when I am stressed and overworked and overtired. And Mm -hmm. that's when I have really bad flare ups. What is PCOS? So PCOS is polycystic ovarian syndrome. And it is a very common illness. And it's technically classified as an autoimmune condition. And it's funny because people think of it as a reproductive disorder. But it's really not. Um, Basically, it affects your hormone levels. It affects... You can have cysts on your ovaries. It's not always present. Basically, everyone is affected by it differently. Um, so for me, I was diagnosed very young with it. I was diagnosed at 14 and for me, it causes me to have very high testosterone and also cystic ovaries. The hypothyroidism, I just have an underactive thyroid. So it makes it, the two conditions basically make each other worse. Usually if you have one, sometimes the other can develop or become present. Um, and it just, the funny thing about PCOS too is even though it is so common, it is so understudied and so undertreated. Basically, doctors put women on birth control and that's it. They're like, that'll manage it. The problem is you come off birth control eventually. You cannot stay on birth control the rest of your life. And so a lot of women, when they come of it, their PCOS is worse. And then they also develop uh, post-birth control syndrome. Which what is, is that? It's basically your body is shot to hell. You are depleted of all your vitamins and... It's just your body's reaction to coming off synthetic hormones for years and years and years. So your body is now having to make its own hormones again. Because when you're on the pill, you're not. You're on synthetic hormones. So it's it's crazy because now you're seeing a lot of women like myself choose to come off the pill and then having to 
kind of heal their bodies naturally because it also fucks with your gut lining. It fucks. It just messes with everything. It really does. I'm, I'm curious to kind of hear more about like to have someone on who's like a birth control expert yeah i mean i can't i can't speak to that i can obviously only speak speak to to anecdotal experience anecdotal experience and the the little bits of information i've gotten from like my nutritionist and my doctor um basically the thing about birth control is you're not supposed to be on it for more than like i think eight to ten years is the max i was coming up on 10 years this year um because they put me on at 14 to manage my pcos and the problem with that for me is now Think about it. My body never went through puberty naturally. My Interesting. My hormones never even had a chance to level out because they were just like, pill, there you go. Like, she'll be fine. And I, so basically a lot of women, when they come off birth control, they struggle with weight gain or weight, they lose too much weight. Um, for me, I've actually had an easier time losing weight and lifting and my energy levels have been more even. Mm-hmm. Also, my like mental health has been improved weirdly since coming off the pill. Um, but the thing I really struggled with is the hair loss. Thankfully I haven't gotten the acne, but the hair loss has been real because it's just a shock to your system. So it's a, it's definitely a process to heal everything. And I've been trying to heal it obviously through my diet and exercise. And that has greatly helped. And like I've said before, it just shows how managing my stress and working out and eating in, within my macros has made all the difference. My protein intake makes the world of difference. I'd be curious to find out what the, like the social, the sociological effects of birth control have been on our society. Some of them you can see right away. Yeah. I, I mean, it's obvious women were able to join the workforce and they had the choice to, for the first time in their, mm-hmm. in the existence of fucking humanity. But, um, I'd also be curious to see if, if women are on these synthetic hormones, how their mate choices would differ. It's funny that you mentioned that. So I've talked with a lot of women about this um, and just also online. You know, I do follow a lot of TikTok creators who specialize in PCOS and similar disorders that, you know, endometriosis is another one that you're put on birth control for. Um, what is endome- <laughs> endometriosis? It's it's kind of similar. I don't really know too much about it. Um, I do know that it's another very painful condition and it, it actually is even harder to get pregnant. It leads to a lot more to infertility and like tissue scarring and other issues. Um, but it's just another condition that affects women that is understudied. And, but a lot of the women that I've talked to, we've all talked about two major things, how our choice in men and our taste has greatly changed. And just also the things that we're willing to put up with in relationships has changed. Like, I think like you have a lot more, I'm trying to think how to explain this. Like it feels like a fog has been lifted, at least for me. Okay. Um, It feels like a fog has been lifted and I think a lot more clearly. And I think, I, I just don't feel this like, anxiousness and this rush of the timeline because you know obviously women are our biological clock it's ticking I don't feel that pressure anymore even though I'm older now than I was on the pill I was always so worried about what age am I gonna get married at what age am I gonna have a kid at I couldn't give two shits now because when it happens it happens I'd rather be with the right person and a little later than you know be stuck with somebody who I can't stand 
Um, and that's just kind of the common trend I've seen is women talk about how their taste in men. How, how has it changed? <laughs> is there something common that that's happened uh, or that you've heard at least? It's just like the kind of like guys, like guys that they used to be attracted to. Now they look at and they're like, I don't know why I was attracted to him. Like I'm not attracted to him anymore. And it's not necessarily like saying that person is unattractive because there's plenty of guys who would be deemed good looking that I'm not attracted to. It's just, I don't know what it is. And I, I'm sure, I'm sure some studies will come out someday about it. We're just not there yet as a society. It's interesting to me. Cause I, I that's the one thing I wonder about. Cause it, it was like I was saying earlier, if you're pumping your body full of synthetic mm-hmm. hormones, like have you, did you notice a change in the kind of, man that you're physically attracted to was it emotional was it psychological all of the above I think it's a little bit of all the above I think my my tolerance is a lot less low and what I mean by tolerance is I don't put up with a the games I don't make excuses anymore for men I don't you know I don't give as many chances as I used to because I realize now I'm like okay, if if you're going to treat me like this, I don't want it. Whereas in the past, I would have that. And that may come too partially with therapy and growing. But I definitely noticed when I came off the pill, I had a lot easier time processing things and moving on. And I didn't feel the need to like give these second chances. And on the flip side, in terms of like physical attraction, I've definitely noticed that guys who I've been with in the past that I used to find extremely attractive, now I'm like, I don't know what it is. I just don't find them attractive anymore. And I, it's it's a very bizarre feeling. I'm sure it's interesting for you to hear about it because you're like, how does that work? I wish it's just as interesting for me to be like, wait, what? It's, it's very funny. Um, but yeah, that's kind of like a common trend I've seen. And I've even talked with my personal friends about it who have also chosen to come off the pill. They had the same experience. It's very weird. Of just losing attraction. Losing attraction and having less of a, you know, feeling like that ticking clock and the tolerance for certain silly things. So are you, you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong here, (laughs) you're less attracted to men who play video games now that you're off the pill. No. That was a joke. It wasn't wasn't very funny. (laughs) I was like, video games, what? I mean, I think if we want to go the video game route, I do think it's um, unattractive if my partner is playing video games while I'm trying to have a conversation with them. I had that. I actually would have a fight with um, my college boyfriend about that. Like we would be on FaceTime and he would he would call me and I'm trying to tell him about something with my day. And he's just like, what? Sorry, I didn't hear you because he's freaking playing video games i'm like yeah come on dude i just need 10 minutes just give me 10 minutes of your time um but yeah i don't know <laughs> that was random yeah i'm, I'm kind of random <laughs> yeah i i think it is interesting to me uh i really really want to have someone on who's like a uh a birth control expert like a doctor or something yeah. like that to really break it down and to talk about the science of it I think you absolutely should, too, because the other thing I will say is it's kind of funny to me how much like misinformation there is out there about birth control and things of that nature. And I have a prime example of that. So when I was 20 years old, I had a cyst rupture on my ovary that sent me to the ER. And I it was the one of the scariest moments of my life. And 
you know, I woke up that morning. I, I was terrified. So I had to drive myself to the ER. I get put in the bed and this, it was a doctor, this resident after my sonogram and stuff, he tried to tell me I was just ovulating. And the scary thing about that is when you're on birth control, you don't ovulate the same way as you do when you're not on birth control. Um, and I was like, this is not ov- like, I'm sorry. I, I look like I'm freaking having a miscarriage and you're going to tell me I'm ovulating. It was so infuriating. And all they did was give me Tylenol and sent me on my way. I had a follow up with my actual doctor and he was horrified that this doctor told me I was ovulating because one, he's affiliated with the hospital that I was sent to. Um, so that looks bad on him, but he's the one that told me, I don't know how you would, this is not ovulation very clearly like day one doctors should be able to recognize that, but it's because this doctor was misinformed. Was, it, was he a man as well? It was, it was yeah. a man. Um, and this is why this story is actually why I will never see another male gynecologist again, because the funny thing about my cyst rupture is I had been complaining to my doctor that something was wrong and begging for him to do an, a sonogram or an ultrasound because I was like, something is wrong. I'm in constant pain. I am tired again all the time. He was like, your, la- your labs are fine. And that's a big thing too with PCOS and related conditions is women were told you're fine. Your labs are fine. And it's like half the, most of the time we know our bodies and we're not fine. That is a prime example of, I was very clearly not fine. My doctor said if that hadn't ruptured when it did and it kept growing, not only would I probably have needed emergency surgery and lost the ovary, I could have, oh my God. I could have died because if it had grown and ruptured, it could have caused me to bleed out internally. Holy shit. And it's just a prime example of him ignoring me for months and months saying, you're fine. Your labs are fine. Could have cost me everything, like literally everything. And it's just that, but that stories like mine, what's sad is that stories like mine are not unique, right? They are like, I have so many friends with similar stories of doctors not listening to them. And it's not always men. A lot of the times it is, but it is not always just our, our pain is brushed, brushed aside, And I will say, too, I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge the fact that black women and women who are of color, they get it even worse. I have a a girl I knew in college, um, a doctor once told her that black women don't feel pain. That is horrifying, the fact that that came out of a medical professional's mouth. But he was like, you don't feel pain the same way to her. And she's obviously of color. So it really is. What was his reasoning that's behind that that is just that is a deck like that sounds like something from the 1920s it is that is a stereotype that is somehow still believed to this day and it's there have been plenty of studies done too that sh- have shown that pe- women of color people of color are treated their pain is treated differently than caucasian people and well, it's so everybody sad. knows that gingers don't feel pain. <laughs> That's an actual study that has happened. I heard gingers also don't have souls. Um, I, I don't can't know. confirm or deny. I can't confirm or deny that one either. But I have a couple friends that are gingers, so maybe I'll have to ask them <laughs> and get their consensus. Yeah, straight up, there's like a scientific study, and I don't know when this. This was also from the 1920s. 
I can't but tell it's if less you're being offensive s- when it's ginger. So. I can't tell if you're being serious right now or if that if there was an actual study. I'm to- being 100% serious. <laughs> it's something to do with, um, like, I feel like I remember hearing about this too. Like anesthesia affects people with red ha- red hair yeah, differently. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's so funny. I that just like unlocked like a weird memory. I feel like I talked about that in a science class once or something, growing up. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's just wild. I don't know. But yeah, PCOS has definitely been a defining um, thing in my life and has been its own journey for sure. What inspired you to start Not the Girl Next Door? It's so funny. So I, in college, loved hosting. I was an entertainment host for, we called it, it was called Syracuse Unpeeled. Um, It's basically like an e-news type student run show. And I loved doing that. And I loved just- Were you like a reporter? I was the host. So I started out as a reporter- so my freshman year, I was, like, just working cameras. Then I moved up to reporting. And then my senior year, I hosted the show. I had a co-host for – actually, it was my junior second semester junior year I started hosting. And then I did that through senior year. And so then, obviously, flash forward, I'm here in Nashville working. And um, it's no secret I work for iHeartRadio. My podcast is not affiliated with them in any way. Um, but I was having a conversation with my now boss. And she was – you know, we were just shooting the shit – And I was getting to know her a little bit more. This was like early days of me. This was last year, I think in August or July. And I was talking to her about, you know, her career path. And she asked me, well, what's your goals? What do you want to do? I said, I really want to get back into hosting, right? And she goes, well, have you ever thought of starting a podcast? And I was like, I've thought about it. I just, I don't know if I should. I, I never felt like, I always had that question of, is my voice the one that really needs to be heard? And is it worth it to share my stories and talk with people? And, you know, w- one of those, who am I to be doing this kind of things, right? And she looked at me. <laughs> I will never forget the look on her face because she was so funny about it. She goes, you literally work for the number one podcasting company. Fucking do it. Were her exact words. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm doing it. So, of course, I, at that time, too, was going through a breakup, um, a very bad breakup, <laughs> And I had started therapy again and I was just going through a lot in terms of figuring out, okay, who do I want to be and what do I want to say? And I just started to reflect on, you know, everything that I'd been through in my teen years and growing up. And I kind of just, I always came back to rom-coms because I am a hopeless romantic at heart, but romantic comedies did me so damn dirty because they set me up with so many wrong expectations and ideas about love and relationships and life and what it would be like once you grow up. And it's, I'm not saying like rom-coms are everything that's wrong with society, but I just came back to that idea. Right. Well, it's an idealized version of love. Right. Exactly. And I just kind of started talking to people in my life. And so not the girl next door kind of came from this idea of, you know, you don't have to be that cookie cutter what you think you should be. You don't have to fit into a certain mold to be worthy of love and deserving of love. And you don't have to do, you don't have to be anyone other than yourself to live a happy life. And so it kind of came from that. And it became a way for me to not only have like a living diary in a sense and kind of process things that I had been through, but also bring on people whose stories I wanted to hear and 
have a conversation with and a dialogue with. And over time, it's just kind of, it's just kind of grown into this community that recognizes the beauty in being a unique individual. Um, and I'm really proud to say that because I take great pride in every episode that I put out and I never bring on somebody who I don't have conversations with beforehand and I don't bring on anybody who I don't, you know, not get along with, but that you don't connect with. Yeah. Because if I can't connect with them, how can I expect my audience to right? Um, and I just think that it, it's become a brand that I'm very proud of and holds a big place in my heart because I want, I always say if one person gets out of it something that makes them learn to love themselves, then that's worth it to me. Because if I had that person five, 10 years ago, maybe I wouldn't have gone through a lot of the things that I've been through and felt the way that I did about myself. So I just want to be that person. I want to be the person for somebody else that I never had. And that's kind of what the podcast and the brand and the community is really all about. Absolutely. Yeah. I think for myself, a lot of inspiration for start starting the show was at my, uh, my lowest moments spiritually, I would listen to Joey Diaz mm-hmm. and he's a, a standup comedian yeah. from, uh, from New Jersey. He grew up in New Jersey okay. and he was a cocaine addict, straight up a criminal, went to prison, had a couple of felonies. And he talked about the low points in his life of like doing cocaine at like four in the morning. And he tells a lot of funny stories. Right. And they are funny stories, but there are moments where he gets real. And Mm -hmm. that really resonated with me. And the thing that resonated with me, with your, your podcast and your style, it's kind of, it's kind of like a, uh, a journal entry, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's what I wanted you to feel like. I think the biggest compliment that I've gotten from people, I take it as a compliment is it, they always say it feels like I'm just having a conversation with a friend. And that's what I wanted it to feel like is I didn't want it to feel like I'm a lecturing people or trying to be like, I know best and you don't. I wanted it to feel like an authentic life take. And, you know, because I, half the time too, I don't feel like what I'm saying is new information. I don't feel like it's, oh, sometimes maybe it is. Maybe it is like groundbreaking, whoa, thought, but not always, Right. I think what sets my podcast apart from others is if people can connect with me and feel that connection, then they're going to take something away from it. And I think that's kind of the beauty for all of social media is bad. I think the good thing about, you know, especially now TikTok, the platform has, it's obviously blown up, but people being able to share their stories and connect and share these thoughts. A lot of it, too, is like just the same thing, just different words, but you may connect with one person and not the other because you have shared life experiences or you're both from the same city or background, whatever it may or be. Or how you say it. Exactly. You know, it's it's not what you say, it's how you say it. And if your delivery connects with one person, it may not land with another. And so I think we're all just out here trying our freaking best because life is hard. At the end of the day, life is hard. It can suck. My mom always said life's going to bitch slap you across the face, but it doesn't have to if you, you know, kind of just buckle down and do what you have to do. And I think you learn to duck at some point. 
Exactly. If it bitch slaps you enough times, you're going to learn to move out of the way and yeah. dodge and do what you got to do. And yeah, I think that's kind of the one good thing about social media is as toxic it, as it can be, you can get something good out of there's, it. There's positives in it, I yeah. think. I mean, as a as a musician and as a creative type, yeah, it's it's never been harder in some ways, but it's also never been easier. We we have so many resources at our hand now. Even you as a, as a, a fellow podcaster, right? I feel it, I feel like podcasting has kind of become like the new YouTube vlog. You know, that was early, big when I was in high school and my early teens, and I feel like podcasting is that new thing. So even though it may feel like the market is oversaturated, there is there is a big enough ocean for all of us, and I think it just keeps getting bigger. Um, and it, it doesn't, you're going to get out what you put in too. I will say, I think a lot of times people may not want to do the work and they may think, okay, cool. I'm going to post a video and it goes viral and then boom, I'm done. That's just not how it works. And that is a harsh reality. For sure. Yeah. I mean, getting viral, I don't even know how or why or a way to do it. I think, honestly, for, for me, I just wanted to fucking do a podcast. You yeah. know what I mean? At, at the end of the day, I could romanticize it and say all this shit, but it was listening to the Joey Diaz's and the Joe Rogan's of the world and them talking about owning your life and improving yourself is what really resonated with me. Right. And I figured, why not start a podcast? I came up with the name before. I, I just thought the Poptimist, that would be a cool podcast. And then my next thought was, I'm going to start a podcast. Yeah. And that's I, how it started. <laughs> exactly. I mean, they all just kind of start with ideas. And even mine was my boss telling me, you should start a podcast. And I was like, okay, I guess I'm doing it. And it, obviously, it was a couple months before I launched it. And because I, I'm also the kind of person that I really just <laughs> I'm I always feel like things aren't done that's my fatal flaw is I whether it's my perfectionist like, yes and but not even just perfectionist I'm always like you know I'll put out an episode and I'm like oh I could have talked about this damn it I should have and I have to stop doing that that's my own yeah thing you're, you're 40 episodes deep now right <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm okay. 40 episodes in um I'm on hiatus right now I just you know so my birthday, my 24th birthday was also the one year of the podcast. And I decided I needed to take the holidays off because a, I was super busy with work. I was, I'm going to be traveling a lot. And I just needed that reprieve to regroup and be like, okay, what did I learn? What did I like about season one? What am I going to do differently? And also now, you know, season two, I'm going to be doing videos a lot more and just, you know, taking everything I've learned and making it that much better because it has been a learning process. And I think that's, it's so easy to beat yourself up for earlier episodes with the sound quality, whatever it is. Like oh, for yeah. me, I, I'm like, oh my God, that sound, that microphone. But my editing skills weren't there yet. Cause even though I had a good editing basis from college, I hadn't used it in a couple years, yeah. you know? So it's now just about making season two even better. And, you know, I, I can't look back. I can only look forward. And I, yeah, I just got to keep, that's my fatal flaw is I overthink. <laughs> Have you done a bad episode yet? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've had episodes where I'm like, I can't release this. This, the sound is horrible or I don't even know what we were saying. Um, 
Yeah. Have you had anyone request that you not release an episode yet? Yeah, yeah. I actually have, but not in the reason that you're thinking. Um, I had a friend of mine on and our episode at first, it was like very raw and raunchy. Um, and then she was like, you know what? I, I, she was like, I'm very nervous with work to release that she's like i'm very nervous about it and i was like no worries so that episode is deep in the archives that one will probably it's a funny episode but it probably will never see the light of day and that's fine because that's a patreon exclusive episode yeah maybe probably not even that because unless i bleep out her name so she's never identified but um yeah and that's something too i will say is i always if i have people on i want to make sure they're happy with the episode and that for sure there's nothing that they said that you're uh, like i want people to feel comfortable that they're like you know what i'm not ready for that to be out there in the world absolutely it's that segment um because i just at the end of the day it's their story and they're trusting me with it so i want to do them justice well i feel like you as well as i um we, we have a very similar style yeah. on the mic yeah, we definitely do. <laughs> and people get very confessional with us. And yes. they tell us shit and then afterwards are like, I don't know if I want that out in the world. Yeah. And I'm I'm cool with editing stuff out for people if they're like, Can you edit this part out? Yeah. I don't like it, but I also understand where people are coming from. Right, because it's at the end of the day, if someone is trusting you with their most vulnerable moments in life, you wanna make sure that they feel comfortable. And I never want someone to feel any certain way about me. Like, oh, you, she released that and I didn't want it out yeah, there yet. No, I 100%. Never, because it's, it's just, it's not my story to share. It's theirs and it should be on their terms. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it truly is like, I feel like it's like different genres of music mm -hmm. podcasting. Yeah. You know what I mean? Cause it's like, we kind of do something along the same lines um, just listening to your show, I feel like you're really, you're, you're a really great speaker and you're better at sweetly describing things <laughs> like the ugliness. You know what I mean? Yeah. I feel like I'm much more like yeah. to the point. I definitely can get there sometimes, but I also, I want to deliver things in a way that's easily digestible because, you know, the hard conversations that I like to have, they are not for the faint of heart sometimes. Um, and so talking about them in a way that's less intimidating, I think makes people more receptive to the overall message in the end. What is it like to be a woman dating in Nashville? Oh, Lord Jesus, help me. That'll say that, help me. Um, dating in Nashville sucks, to put it bluntly. Um, I think it's hard too, because I'm somebody who's very much a relationship person. I haven't... And I think in the past I've gotten caught up with trying to be the cool chill girl and all the cool, being the cool chill girl gets you is your boundaries disrespected and you used. Yeah. Um, the pump and dump. No, literally. I, and so now that I will say you have to be, you can't be afraid to lose people because if you're going to lose the guy you're talking to, is that somebody you want at the end of the day? And, the, and when I started looking at it through that lens of like, I don't want to scare him off versus no, I'm just communicating. And if that scares him, then that's not somebody I want. Um, they, dating in Nashville is definitely not for the faint of heart, but I don't think it's just a Nashville issue. I think it's a generational thing. I think, you know, dating apps, social media, it's makes people too accessible and it makes your dating pool so big that people are like, well, what else is out there? You can have 
all people check off all these boxes, but oh, there's these couple. Let me see if somebody else checks those, right? And it's just even if I date older, you know, if I go on a date, I've been on dates with guys who are 30 and they think, oh, because of my age, I just want to have fun. I'm like, no, I would like to be respected, please, and thank you. I mean, the bar is literally in hell and it still is like hard to find, which I think is so sad. Why do you think that is? Like I said, dating apps, I think are a big reason. Social media is a big reason. Um, You know, I think also just the times, I think people are settling down later in life. People want to have their fun. They can't commit. You know, it can also be a lot. I think it could be children of divorce. Maybe that plays a role. Um, People whose parents are together versus not, but also, I don't really know. It's just, I think dating apps are definitely a big, big thing. And social media, too, in general. Do you know who Dr. Wendy is? Have you seen her on TikTok? I don't know if I'm familiar with her page, no. Okay, you you would dig her. But I had her I had her on the podcast um, earlier this year, maybe sometime last year. Uh-huh. And we talked about dating apps. And she said dating apps basically hijack uh a, a system in our brains mm-hmm. and gives us too many mate choices yeah your dating pool should not be that big and also dating apps too i think people use for validation more than to actually go on dates it's like the validation of look how many people find me attractive right because it's the epitome of you're judging a book by its cover well hold on a second okay there's a difference between being a man on a dating app and being a woman on a dating I'm sure there is, but please enlighten me because obviously I've talked to my guy friends about their dating app experiences, but not more so of them being like, Meg, help me with my profile. Like, <laughs> Sure. Well, I would say that's a great first point. I feel like in th- this is something like men don't necessarily know how to sell what's good about them. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think for myself, um, like, I, I have a, a dry sense of humor, and I'm not necessarily a great first date. Mm-hmm. I'm a bad first date, honestly. <laughs> it, it's not until date, like, maybe three or four where you st- start yeah. liking me. You know <laughs> what I mean? I Yeah. I mean, I think what I'll say to that is I think a lot of men don't know how to plan dates suited to their strengths. And Interesting. What okay, I, keep going. What I mean by that is... One, a lot of men don't plan first dates, period, anymore. I'm so sick of being asked, I don't know, what do you want to do? One works for you. I, like, may, I'm not speaking for all women. Maybe, like, as much of a control freak as I am, it would be nice for a guy to be like, hey, does dinner Friday at XYZ time work for you? Like, it's really not that hard. But I will say, if you you have a dry sense of humor, right, and you are you say you're not a great first date, so plan something that kind of takes that pressure off, right? Go to pins and play games or things of that nature. Something has some sort of activity to kind of take the pressure off the conversation. And I find that I the best first dates, bleh, the best first dates that I have been on have been something of that nature where it's been like an, an activity, an activity that I would agree with that. That as kind well. of gets like the conversation going more so than a sit down dinner because it can feel like an interview sometimes if you don't Absolutely. already have that chemistry beforehand because it depends too. For me, like I, if I'm talking to a guy for a couple days, and the conversation, I feel like I'm carrying it. I'm not going to go on a date with him because if I can't get the basics out of you over text and I feel like you're not taking an interest in me why am I going to go spend my Friday night with you right so I think that too is like an interesting thing 
See, I feel like a lot of men, the thing I struggle with on the dating apps is I feel like the burden is on me to enter, like to, to keep the conversation going. Like there, there is nothing fucking worse. I just stop at a certain point. I'll just stop responding. If I'm getting one word answers and it's not really a conversation. Right. One word answers aren't a conversation. And I think it goes both ways. It I, goes have bo- both I have ways. that same experience where guys are like being like, yeah, work was good. And it's like, okay, are you going to ask how my day was? Like, that's the bare minimum. Just I like, just keep a conversation going. For sure. Absolutely. 100%. Um, and I, I think as, as a dude, like the burden is a little bit somewhat on us to prove that we are worthy of the time. Yeah. Like that, that is the mating game. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like w- we try and dr- dress the fact up that we are civilized living in this civil society. Mm-hmm. And to some degrees that is true, but I really feel like from my experience, a lot of that is bullshit. Like we're still natural beings. You know what I mean? We're, st- we're still animals. You look at human history from the dawn of time until now, there is still war there is still murder there is still famine there is still rape these are and they're all horrible things don't get me wrong but they're constants throughout human history i don't know if what i'm saying is really making sense no it makes absolute sense and it's i agree with it 100 percent. and it's sad to say that those things will probably always exist because as much as we are a quote-unquote civilized society it's those are unfortunately things that build and tear down societies and it's just i think part of the cycle of a society, unfortunately. Um, and the thing I'll say too about in terms of being like animals and all that stuff and why there's this pressure on men still is I think it's because a lot of, a lot of men, at least in my experience, I'm not going to generalize men, but in my experience, a lot of men still look down on women. And what I mean by that is they still, even though they say they want a woman who's independent and career driven, they want, you know, her to have her own job, her to pay the bills too, all that stuff. They still want her to do the brunt of the emotional labor, right? They will not carry any emotional labor in their relationship. What do you mean by emotional labor? So it's hard to explain, but prime example is if you think about it, women used to not work, right? Men, women relied on men for financial, for everything, especially, especially finances, right? Now we don't need that. What we need is a supportive partner who is emotionally available, who can, you know, A, stay loyal, B, be able to have the hard conversations, communicate what their needs, be receptive to when, of criticism. That's a big one. You know, women criticizing, you know, when they cross their boundaries and all that stuff and respect those boundaries in a well, relationship. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that's criticism. That's more of communication. It's It still can be a criticism. It depends on how you put it. I say criticism as not like you're training your partner, but like what works in one relationship won't necessarily work in I another. And I think too often people, not just men, people in general think, oh, well, this worked in my last relationship. It's like, well, you're in a new one now. Move on from that. Um And so emotional labor, emotional vulnerability, a lot of men, you know, they don't understand that and they don't know how to do it. You know, think about it. Growing up, you always hear boys don't cry. Real men don't cry. All that toxic masculinity bullshit. 
you know, if I hear the word alpha male one more time, I think my head's going to explode because a real alpha male, not that I even think that exists, isn't going to have to brag about it, right? To me, being an alpha male is not how much you can lift in the gym and how you don't cry and all that crap. It's being an honest partner and being a loyal partner, being there and emotionally vulnerable, communication, like things that are seemingly bare minimum now, which 10 years ago weren't even conversations. Well, you're talking about healthy masculinity, I think. Yes, and and with healthy masculinity comes the emotional labor. For sure, absolutely. So that's, and that's lacking, I think, for at least in my experience, that's been very much lacking. Well, here's here's what I'll say. I, I agree mostly with what you said. Right. The part I disagree with, Um, And this is not from like the way that I feel. This is the way I've heard other men, like my Mm -hmm. friends talk about it. They feel women lose respect for them if they start to do those things. And that the relationship dynamic changes. So I've heard that as well, right? And what I think is funny about that is, in my experience, the guys who said that have never actually been truly vulnerable. and. I, I, I said that with my, I, I've literally experienced this in my last relationship is he was like, if I cry in front of you, you lose respect for me. I'm like, when? I've literally been begging you to go to therapy. So how am I losing respect for you? It's almost, I think in my opinion, not that their partner's losing respect for them. It's they're losing respect for themselves and they're putting it on their partner, right? Because... And, and that's maybe some women do look down on men who show emotional vulnerability. That's their problem. But and then there definitely is. Oh, I'm sure. And there, I'm sure there absolutely are. But at least in my experience and the women that I surround myself with, we're like begging for healthy, emotional men. <laughs> like it's all we need because we can take care of ourselves now. We, I literally always say I will never need a man financially. I will need a man emotionally. But trying to find that is like a needle in a haystack. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's cultural? Definitely. Absolutely cultural. Um, And I think as the mental health conversation, too, is finally becoming more prevalent, I think a lot of it has to stem with mental health, too, as well. Um, You know, anxiety, depression, PTSD. They're all so incredible. Men are shamed for a lot of that stuff. They are, and they shouldn't be. And But again, I think that's where that conversation of losing respect comes in. It's, I don't know if it's always they actually are losing respect or so much as the fear of women losing respect for them for being vulnerable. That's a good question. I mean, I would say like the nature and nurture conversation is probably a mixture of the two. Oh, absolutely. Here's the other thing about men. Mm-hmm. That there's never been a depressed, anxious, angry woman that's gone in and shot up a mall. <laughs> you know what I'm so, saying? I am so glad that you said that. I am so fucking glad that it's, you said it's that. It's always dudes. It's always dudes. And, and it's always dudes who can't get laid. Not not that I'm putting an emphasis on no, like value for getting laid, but it's the ones that can't form a human connection. Absolutely. Yes. And I will say, too, I think it's so funny going back to the birth control conversation. Women are the ones that are labeled emotional and, you know, put on synthetic hormones to, you know, prevent pregnancy and stuff. Yet, how many pregnancies can a woman 
have in a year? One. How many women can men get As pregnant? many as we possibly can. Exactly. Well, okay. Okay. So that's interesting. Um, and I've, I've heard this talked about before. Exactly. But is that a design flaw? It is, because think about it. It's uneven. It's, it's very uneven. Not even just that, but it's look at who has been in control in history, right? And look at, too, again, how women have been treated when they're on the pill and dealing with these conditions. These diseases are so understudied. And I will say, too, how we could have had male birth control already. But those studies were ended because males were experiencing. I fucking wish we had male birth control. Males were experiencing nausea and bloating and waking and all these things that they didn't like. So they cut the studies. Yet these are all, if you look at the side effects of birth control, they are miles and miles long. And yet women are put on it in two seconds. But men experience the same side effects and, oh, got to cancel the study. Yeah, we're the ones that have no pain tolerance and are emotional and all this crap. I don't want to hear it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've heard something something uh, about that as far as the male birth control pill goes. And I will say that I'm 100% for it. The poptimist endorses it. <laughs> the poptimist endorses vasectomies, um, abortion, all of the above. It's just funny because I can, I can feel the eye rolls now of people listening being like, she's just an angry woman or whatever. And it's like, you're damn right. I'm angry. And I'm rightfully angry because our, I feel like it's just now these conversations are actually being brought to light and women's voices are starting to be heard. But for so long that they, they weren't, we were told we're just emotional and we belong in the kitchen and just all these derogatory things sure, that yeah. I even still hear to this day. Like, it, it just it's, still, it's a common occurrence. It I, still I leaves agree. me speechless. And it does. I still hear it in dating. Like, and it baffles me because the other thing I will say, too, is men, I don't think, understand what it truly means to date an independent woman. I think I've experienced a lot of men who love the idea of an independent woman. But when it comes to dating somebody like that, they don't know how to handle it because they, it brings out their worst insecurities. And it, what I mean by that is, like, I, I, you know, independent women, you don't need a man. You don't need a man. You are financially independent, but also you are socially independent, right? And so it comes with also being able to accept the fact that your partner is probably going to go to networking events or have other men in her immediate vicinity, or she's going to get hit on at the bar. She can handle herself. And she will be just fine. If you're a good partner, you should have trust in your relationship. And I think a lot of the times, like I said, the idea does not match the reality. And that's where a lot of problems arise. I think the three most important aspects in a relationship for me are trust, loyalty, and communication. Absolutely. And I think love can grow out of that. Right. I, I think there's this, uh, and it's starting to get dispelled in a lot of ways, but there's this notion around romantic love that it needs to be um, unconditional. And I don't think romantic love should be unconditional. I think it no. should be conditional based on how your partner is treating you. 
Right. And no matter your orientation or whatever. No, absolutely. Love, the only true unconditional love really is for a parent to their child. And even then, like, I'm sorry, if my, if I one day have a child and they murder somebody in cold blood, that's not the child I grew to love, you know? And when we talk about love, it it would be so easy to say it's black and white. You either love somebody or you don't there. It's not. I, and that goes for everything in life. And I think when it comes to love and relationships, the only thing that is ever truly black and white is when you are with somebody, they will either be in your life for the rest of your life or you will lose them at some point. There is no, that is the only black and white. In what capacity your relationship is, I don't know. That goes for every kind of relationship, though. It doesn't have to be romantic. It can be friendships, whatever the case is. They will either be there forever or they will not be. And another thing I'll say, too, is just because something is meant to be doesn't mean it's necessarily meant to be forever. A lot of people are just coming into your life to serve a lesson. And you can truly have a good, healthy, loving relationship that still ends. I mean, I know I've experienced that. I've been in love that ended and it was a great relationship and I'm glad it ended because it's led me to so many more opportunities. And I think that's something people don't understand too. If I could be a little bit vulnerable, um, I, I think the, the biggest lessons that I've learned from love and from dating, you know, it's, it's like there are these repeated themes mm-hmm. in my life. Right. And I don't necessarily realize that I was in, in love with uh, a woman or a girl or that, that I have loving feelings for her until after she's gone, long after she's gone. It's like a, a months long thing, you know, maybe seven, eight months later that I don't necessarily process the, process the breakup in the moment, mm-hmm. whether I was the one who was dumped. I mean, getting dumped is it you know something is up. Uh, oh, so, absolutely. You know, when you're about to get dumped. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and you can just feel it and you know, there's something wrong, but you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. And I think anytime you're, you're intimate with someone, and I mean this, I, when I say intimate, I mean, emotionally, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Um, there's so many wires that get crossed. And I think the best relationships that I've had have been, uh, mirrors of me where I was able to see my flaws as a human being. Right. You know, and I don't think that's a negative thing. No, absolutely not. I think being able to confront your flaws is definitely the key to growing. Um, and for me personally, I've only, I've only had two major relationships. I've like been on dates here and there. Um, I even had a boyfriend in high school, but that actually, no, I had two boyfriends in high school. One of them was only two weeks and that was the worst relationship of my life. And I'll get into that in a second. Um, so three relationships, only two of them I consider important relationships because I was actually in love with them. Um, one was good. One was bad. Both of those relationships taught me so much about love and life and myself. And I think if you walk away from a relationship, you need to be able to look at what did I do wrong? Yeah, 100%. Because it takes two, it takes two to break a relationship. It really, it really does. Even if somebody cheats, you got to look at, okay, what, what were the times that I crossed a line or caused a fight in this relationship? Not, not saying it caused them to cheat. You never caused somebody to cheat, but you need to take something away to grow and learn from and bring a better version of yourself to your next relationship. 
And if you don't confront those things and if you don't confront your traumas and your childhood traumas especially, it will bleed into your next relationship and that is an unnecessary burden on your partner. And I think that's where a lot of relationships fail. I know that is exactly why my last relationship failed is I had some shit, but it largely was his childhood trauma that led to the insecurities that then he was constantly accusing me of cheating and all of these things. I have found, and I can't speak as, uh, I can only speak as a man in this instance. Yes. But women in the past who have accused me of cheating, and I am not a cheater. I've never cheated. They were the ones cheating. Yes, 100, That's 150 fucking percent. Yep, that happened to me where he was doing some shady shit and he was constantly worried about what I was doing and it's because he was doing shady shit. So that's the other thing too. It's like usually if they're worried about it, it's because they're doing something that if you did it, they wouldn't like. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's It it's, goes both ways too. Yeah, that's one, unfortunately. For sure. And it's, it's a human quality. You know what I mean? Yes. It's absolutely. 100% human. And it, it, I don't think there's really any answers to dating. You just get enough experience along the way to decide what you're willing to put up with. Right. And w- not what you're willing to put up with. No, that's, it that's, is. It is what you're willing to put up with because you need to decide is something going to be a deal breaker for me or can we work through this issue? And I think as I've, you know, my taste in dating has changed and I've just, you know, upped my standards and I realized how fucking low my standards were. I don't put up with half the shit that I used to. And in my last relationship, I should have left way fucking sooner than I did. What are your deal breakers now? Oh God. Do we want like... In terms of what, like, in what stage of the dating process? Like, are we fully in a relationship? That's honestly a great question. Because Break it down for me in different stages. So, I'm not on the dating apps anymore. I just realized they're not for me. Um, and they're a waste of my time and energy. But when I was on the dating apps, things that I would see in a guy's profile, if he mentions sex in his profile, automatic left. I'm sorry. There's no reason to be mentioning sex in I your agree. dating profile. Um Weirdly enough, too, anytime I've saw a guy that was like, no one, like something kind of like, woe is me, if that makes sense, of like, oh, yeah. no one actually wants a date. If I message you, you better answer oh, that kind of stuff. That's okay. It gives me like, I'm a nice guy vibes. And in my experience, if a guy has to tell me how nice he is, he's not nice because that's kryptonite to women. Yes. Well, I will say the whole nice guy thing, a lot of these guys that are self-proclaimed nice guys they deem their actions as transactional right so they think if they take her on a nice date and bring her flowers and compliment her that they that a woman then owes them something sex that's what you're saying not even just sex but like more time another date whatever it is a response to their text it can be sex but in general i'm telling you as as a man and, and knowing those guys it is That's sex. what it leads to. It, no, it, it all roads lead to sex with those yeah. kinds of guys. But no, just like no man owes me anything, I don't owe any man anything, right? You can go on a date if you are honest and respectful. That's all you owe at the end of the day is basic human decency, nothing more. And so that's what I will say, too, is like those guys usually see things as trans. Everything is transactional with them. And when they don't get their way, they usually flip out. So that just kind of sends alarm bells off for me. Um, in the talking stage and stuff, I expect consistent communication. I don't need to talk to you 24 seven, but I expect at the bare minimum, a text a day, at least. Hey, For sure. and if you're going to have that kind of day where you're not on your phone be like, Hey, 
I'm having a really busy day. I'm not going to be on my phone. I'll talk to you when I can. Just literally bare minimum communication. Or to communicate that maybe you're not that kind of person who likes texting. Right. Exactly. Like set those kind of boundaries. Like, hey, I know you like to text. I'm not big on that. Would it be cool if, you know, we don't text as much, but I'll give you a phone call at the end of the day. Like for sure. Setting those kinds of boundaries. Right. In terms of the dating stage, it really is so different. I think for me now, I, you know, I don't necessarily, it's weird. I don't necessarily expect a guy to pay on the first date, but I do think it signals he's interested. And I think for me, if I know I'm not going to go on a second date with him, I'll offer to split the check because I don't, I, I respect that. I personally don't feel right letting a guy pay if I'm already like, oh my God, get me out of here. Um, unless if he's being a douchebag, then I'm like, whatever, fuck you. But um, I also will say too, if we're, if we've been on like three or four dates, um, I have no problem if it's my idea buying you a drink or if like you've paid for the entire dinner and we go somewhere after, I have no problem buying you a drink. I think it shows my interest back. Would you ever pay for a man on a first date? Uh, I think if I asked him on the date. Okay. If he asks me on the date, I fully believe. Like, again, if I ask somebody on a date, but I'll pay. But if they ask me on the date, they're inviting me out. That's the way I see it. Let, let me let me do a, a devil's advocate here. Okay. I and I I always pay on the first date. Yeah. Um, but I think in um in a evolved society, I would not be opposed to a girl wanting to take me out. On and that's a date what I'm saying. If and, I ask and pay. Yeah, if I if I ask a man on a date. I have no problem paying because I am picking where we're – if I'm picking it and planning it and I'm saying where we're going, I have no problem then paying for it. But if he plans it and – like say he takes me – I don't know. This is like so out of pocket. But like say he takes me to like a fucking steakhouse and it was his idea and then he suddenly expects me to pay the bill. I'm going to be like, excuse me. Sure. This was your idea. That's That's, that's the fair. way I see it is if you ask me on a date, I think it's nice to pay. If I ask a man on a date, I – like have no problem paying. Um, usually it's weird because I'm the kind of person. So in my dating history, I feel like I've always given so much of myself that now I want to be chased a little bit. Um, and I, that's something I do express to people I'm talking to is like, look, if you want to take me out, I would like for you to plan it. If you want to, if like you ask me out, you plan it. Don't give me that. Like, Oh, I don't know. Where do you want to go? No, say it with your chest. Be like, Hey, how does this sound to you? Let's do this at this date at this time. I think a lot of men feel confused today. Oh, absolutely. It can be confusing because, but I think that's where communication comes in and being like, hey, do you want me to take charge and plan it or do you want to be planning it with me? Well, I think a lot of men are uh, afraid to take charge because they're afraid of being seen in a certain light. And there's all these conflicting messages that, that we get as men. Yes. I will say in our society in, ter- in terms of dating, and I'm not talking about, like, there's a lot of guys out there that do some skeezy shit, and I, yes. I 100% agree with that. Oh, I, can, I have stories about that, but keep but going. But <laughs> the, the, ultimate, the ultimate thing with, with dating for most people is to be in a relationship and more than likely try and be married to the person. Right, yeah. And to have a life together. Or like a long-term partner, yes. Yes, Absolutely. But if you are, I think this is what 
leave men confused or bitter or angry is that they are told you got to pay for the first date. You don't know if the girl is going to call you again. Mm -hmm. You don't know. You just, you never know, you know? And then on top of that, a relationship, let's say you get married. I, I will try and say this in as least of an offensive way as possible. Mm -hmm. But when you get divorced, all of a sudden, the feminism leaves leaves women's bodies <laughs> and it's then the, they want the patriarchy to step in to protect them i think that's where like for me personally i plan on having a prenup when i get married absolutely 100 percent. I, I think that's where that comes into play um no and I, I get what you're saying like the courts do favor women but that's a building of the patriarchy and it shouldn't be that way you know there's a lot of situations where i'll, I'll look at you know custody cases there are some women who are not meant to be mothers, but yet they get the children simply because they're, they're the, woman. the woman in the relationship. And I don't think that's right at all. What I will say about the whole date thing is even if you do take a girl on a first date and you pay for her, she may not call you again. And that's that's just part of that's it. That's just part of it. Yeah, you got you got to understand that as a man. That's part of the It's part it's same thing if you buy a girl and a drink at a bar, she does not owe you any more than just a hey, thanks. Yeah. Like that's the unfortunate reality of it. And but when it comes to the confusion thing, I want to touch on that. It's not what you say and how, it's how you say it. And I think for, for the sure. men who are afraid to come off a certain way, it's probably because they typically say things in a way that comes off as aggressive or controlling and they may not mean for it. And that's where asking questions is huge. Ask a girl, do you want me to take charge and plan or would you rather plan it? You know, tell like literally just verbatim ask her and if that turns her off then she is not in a place to be in a healthy relationship i, I agree with that i also think a lot of the things we've talked about today if you're a normal healthy human being trying to grow this is stuff that you learn through experience and through age yeah you know what i mean no absolutely i think for me I think I've just learned a lot of these things earlier on because of, unfortunately, traumas that I've been through. and But also at the same time, I committed myself to therapy because of those traumas. And I think that's why I've learned a lot of these lessons so early on. You know, I have friends that are in their late 20s, early 30s that, you know, act like they're my age. And it's just, you know, they haven't grown up yet. And that's okay. We're all on our own timelines. And, you know, dating is hard, especially in a big city like Nashville and what I will say too is a lot of the times the way people you can only control yourself and your emotions and if you communicate things in a healthy and respectful way that's all that matters you know a lot of the times things people do it's not a reflection of you and every it's a reflection of them Meg I think that is the perfect place to end <laughs> yes absolutely. thank you so much for coming on where can people find you at thank you so much for having me I had so much fun um, people can find me on Instagram at not the girl next door podcast. Um, and you know, if they choose to follow along, I'm so grateful. And let me know if you found me through Taylor, cause he's been an amazing host and this is such a fun episode. Indeed. Keep on dreaming. <laughs> See you next week.